Hello heroes, it's Hannah here. We're releasing this episode on election day in America. We'll be out voting, and if you're able, we hope that you'll be voting too. If you need quick info on polling, locations, or hours, or to check if you're registered to vote, we recommend votesaveamerica.com. Thanks. Hi, how's it going? It's going great. I haven't seen you in a while, actually. Yeah, I just came back from a trip from Canada, which was great. (laughs) (laughs) Are you ready to be an expat? I'm... Maybe it's too real, too real. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) I'm jumping ahead. I I will find out uh, in the first half of this November after the results have come in. So I guess this transitions nicely into our topic today. The topic is politics and games. Probably the title that we've chosen hints at that. I don't know. It's not decided yet. (laughs) But we'll get to that shortly. (laughs) And to begin with, we had a playtest of Questlandia. I had a playtest of Questlandia. That's right. You were in Canada. I was. I was an expat. (laughs) Yeah. So this week, I playtested Questlandia without you. Is it the first time? I think that's the first time that that's ever happened. I bet it went great. It was not great. (laughs) 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 So leading up to the playtest, we did meet a lot. Uh, We worked a lot on the symbol reader, which we're sort of incorporating into all aspects of the game. And we worked a lot on the new dice system, which at this point switches out the um, numbers mapping to narrative results in Questlandia and this like little matchy game from the original Questlandia that people have kind of mixed feelings about. And now we're experimenting with having symbols on each face of the die and those symbols you roll and those symbols connect with narrative results and you use the symbol reader to kind of interpret them and they also impact various elements of your character sheet and your traits and what you can do in the future and it's cool and it was not a good play test. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's the classic playtest that follows a lot of isolated design yeah. detached from real world playing. It was a lot of theory crafting of how these mechanics could work, how it might feel, what seems cool on paper. And I'm sorry that it wasn't a great playtest. Um, that's okay. I mean, I'm so glad that I did the playtest leading up to Metatopia because I feel less anxious now. More hopeless, less <laughs> anxious. <laughs> okay, it reduced anxiety and it, hope. It, <laughs> yes. <laughs> 
Um, so I want to, I'll focus on sort of two parts of the play test that we can kind of be working on in the next week. So hopefully I can give, uh, bring a better version to Metatopia. Uh, the first thing was that, you know, in our last few versions, we used the symbol reader to spark world building. Right, right we did. That's right. And was it only really connected to the, the kind of the map, like building the map and the, the kind of the seed of the world? I guess I can't yeah, remember the only, how. The only place we used it in previous ones, as far as my memory is telling me, is for the initial seed questions that spark the entire world. So literally for the whole world, you consult the outer ring of the symbol reader twice. Once to find out what drives the people of this world. And one more time for what threatens them. Yeah. Uh, And, you know, we were like, oh, if we're going to make this beautiful symbol reader that takes a lot of work and will add this other element to the game, well, we don't want to just have it used once. We want it to be an actual tool in the game and to come up again and again. We had some concerns about the potential of, like, overuse. Like, you know, is this going to kind of kill this tool? Is it going to seem gimmicky? Um, I won't say that it seemed gimmicky, but it just didn't, it was like fitting a square peg into a round hole. Like we tried to use the symbol reader for character creation, world building, map making. And it's possible that there are places that it will work, but it was, this world building session felt grueling. It felt like nobody really had a sense of like, like it was really hard to visualize the things we were coming up with. Um, yeah, and it's so hard to say. It's like why it's so hard to point to the exact thing that made it not work. Yeah. But it was just so clear that it wasn't working and didn't feel good. So um, it wasn't even working in its original use as a as a seed? Well, so here's the thing. Yes, I think as the seed it was. But this gets me to my second thing, which is that once we started to map out the locations... I think in our last playtest, we ended up having questions that were like, you know, what is a place of, put put a place of gathering on the map. Mm -hmm. Put a place, like, what is a place of gathering? What is a place that, you know, whose use is contested? I don't remember exactly what questions we asked. And then these places were corresponded to four different suits. Um, Mm -hmm. and those suits, which, you know, have, are suits that have the suits of cards that have come up again and again in Questlandia games corresponded to the world's troubles. And you could kind of imagine like, oh, what does a heart's space look like? Okay. Well, probably that's a place of community. What does a diamond space look like? Okay. If we know that clubs is connected to external pressures or internal pressures, um, with this, we rolled dice and, we ended up getting three of the same result, mm-hmm. three of the same symbol, which yeah. was something that I was hoping would actually happen. Like what happens if you have to build a map and kind of you get three of the same symbol? Like, is it going to suddenly feel boring? Is it going to be a stretch to try to come up with three different locations? I don't know if it was the symbols or the lack of questions, but the places that we created seemed like much more mapped to architectural like to their geographical locations, to any sort of meaning about their use. Like it Uh was like, okay, well here on the map, we'll put these farms. 
Here on the map, we'll put this place on the mountain that's bottlenecking our access to water. Our whole society was built on this big mountain. We had trouble with our access to water. Water mm -hmm. would only, water would kind of flow through this bottleneck and it would freeze. And we had these really extreme temperature fluctuations as a result of, you know, our, this society's equivalent of climate change. And water would sort of rush out and both be like a boon, like, oh, we mm -hmm. need this water, but it would all simultaneously cause a lot of devastation. Gotcha. That was an easy question to answer. Um, and I think people could really visualize that. But once we started putting these locations down, it was like they didn't have any, I don't know, it just wasn't, it wasn't working. Yeah. We had these buttes with a long sort of arduous argument about the function of buttes, where buttes can actually appear on a mountain. Uh, <laughs> oh, no. And so then the question is like, was this just a function of our table? Like, did, was our table just not on the same page? Like, maybe the system is working, but... Well, it sounds like, to me, just off the cuff, it sounds like, you know, the wrong sorts of connections were available to the players, right? Like, you, if it put the emphasis on the architecture and structure and geography, but it felt like the connection needed to be more related to the essential drives or threats, like, whatever existing meaning you have figured out about this world that's doable that's changeable and it could be that you know rolling the die is just a dead end there like it's too constricting to have it be randomized it's better to just say these are the kinds of places you can make and if you think of one that seems interesting for the world you can just choose it yeah so we'll have more to say about that. I don't want to get too deep into the weeds. But yeah, that was one thing that really stood out. And then also people had a really hard time, I think, visualizing their characters. And it felt like there was like a little piece of character building that was missing, like that maybe we need some added traits that you can circle to start out and kind of uh, have something else to glom onto when you're figuring out who you were or who you are. Yeah. We've we've had a few ideas that we've played with, and I don't think we're there yet, about what are the most efficient questions, like the fewest questions you can answer that gives the fullest concept of a character. Tough stuff. It sounds like a very fruitful playtest. It was definitely fruitful, and I felt bad for our friends. You know, I was sitting there, <laughs> and I could, like, I could sense the, like, the, the tension and the awkwardness and the slowness yeah. and everybody looking to each other wondering if other people were struggling in the same way and i was just kind of like doing my breathing being like <sighs> these are my friends they don't hate me <laughs> <laughs> you can't make an omelet without losing a few friends <laughs> all right so with that topic so evan hi hi Today we're talking about politics in games. Mm -hmm. And my understanding is that we're specifically talking about the difference between implicit and explicit politics and this question of whether explicit politics belong in games. Right. And so probably to start, we should just make clear what we think of when we say those terms. For me, implicit means the unconscious expression of the politics that you live in and the culture that you're in and the way that you think about the world. 
and the ways that that slips into your game. And explicit is you thinking about the political reality of your world and trying to actively engage with that in some way related to your game, through the mechanics, through the way you present the game, or even just how you speak online as a game designer. Because now that's that's a part of making games, you know, who you are. Does that match your implicit, explicit understanding? Yeah, it does. So this topic's on our mind a lot lately because uh, politics in America are insane. They are crazy. They are consuming, unavoidable, and very loud. Yeah. I mean, you know, for us, I think this is a little bit of a... I don't want to say like a trick topic, but like there is no, we are not asking the question here, can games be apolitical? Yeah, neither of us believe that a game can be apolitical. So we don't believe that you really have a choice about whether or not you're putting your politics into games. Politics is a very large term. (laughs) And implicit politics can mean so many things. It can just mean, do you collect things in your game? And is that rewarded? Is it competitive? Do you find out who's a winner and who's a loser? So when people say, this game has politics, or gosh, this game was so political, what do you feel like they're normally saying? I generally assume that people are referring to political aspects of a game that don't match their personal politics. And that's why those politics stand out to them. And of course, it's also possible that it does match their personal politics, but it's just so on the face of it, transparently about the political process, that then, okay, sure, it's obvious. It's about, it's literally a game about protesting in the streets. Sure. Yeah. We also see this, though, like we see this complaint come up when there's a game that has women as the leads or LGBT characters who have a main romance storyline. Yeah. Or just a game that gives options for what pronouns you can use to refer to characters as. And people say that's political because that's not part of the political norms of their that they feel they live in, right? So that's a mismatch of implicit politics. Usually, I mean, we are in this border territory in the politics of this time about transforming the explicit into implicit, transforming the political act of saying we're going to be representative in a new way into something that hopefully eventually becomes a cultural norm that's not something to think twice about. We live in a culture where some things are nearly universally accepted, some things are openly contested, and some things are nearly universally not accepted. So having games be competitive, where whoever is the best at number crunching wins, is a almost universally accepted idea of how games should be. You know, if you're smart enough to crunch the numbers better, to read more moves in advance, you deserve to win. You are the winner. Um, shooting the bad guys. Yeah. It, 
makes me think of this. Uh, maybe it was even a, like a flash game where you're dropped on this alien planet and you have a gun and you just start sort of moving forward and there's these little like alien uh, blobs in front of you and you're just shooting them as you go. The game lasts for a few minutes. You get to the end and you get to this like gentle creature who is the mother of all of these creatures that you've just murdered in cold blood, who's wondering if you've seen her babies. Do you remember that game? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You get to the end, and you realize that, like, you've been cultured to know that if you have a gun, and you're dropped down on an alien planet, and you see something in front of you, that the game wants you to assume that it's hostile. Yeah. Yeah. And if you go back and replay, the creatures don't hurt you. No. <laughs> they don't do anything. They just hop about. So that's an example. Yeah. So I remember a number of years ago, somebody sent an email wanting to join this writing group that I'm a part of. And I think we described ourselves as like a sci-fi and fantasy, like social sci-fi and fantasy exploring like radical fiction, you know, socially aware fiction. I don't remember exactly what, like how we sort of self-described. Mm-hmm. Um, but the person was like, you know, I'm writing this alternate history fantasy novel. It seems like you guys do some cool stuff, but I don't understand this description of like sci-fi and fantasy having to be politicized or having to have some social meaning why can't you just write a an alternate history that is separate from politics? Why do you have to say something? And we're like, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, like, if you're going to be making an alternate history, you're choosing whose alternate story to tell. Yeah. Like, you're choosing to make a world that always accepted trans people. Or you're choosing to make a world where the South lost and they fucking got over it and stopped being racist. (laughs) (laughs) Or you're choosing to make a world where the South won because you're a fucking racist. (laughs) (laughs) Like, the idea of an apolitical alternate history, I don't think is a thing. Mm -hmm. And to that end... It just brings up this this bigger conversation for me about, like, why make something? Why put the work into, like, bringing a new product of creation into the world if you feel like you have nothing to say? Why make an alternate history if you want it to look just like our current <laughs> history? Like, if you're making changes, how can you change history without that being political? <laughs> history is... Applied politics. And I think that we had, you know, this came up a little bit in our last episode, I think, where uh, we talked about the idea of museums, of like some museums being like, oh, I don't know, you know, we're just curators of history. We're neutral. (laughs) While I was up in Canada, I went to the Fine Art Museum. And it's very strange to look at the art and there's you, the observer, and there's the artist who made the thing, and then there's this third person 
the curator, the curator who decided that this is worth presenting and who wrote their little statement about what it means and what the author intended and what you should take from it. That's not an apolitical role. That's a role that's full of decisions and opinions, often ones that I did not get into at all. And I feel like as a game designer, you are doing a similar thing. It's not just the world that you created and the people playing in it. It's you making these decisions about what's worth calling into attention, what do the mechanics actually engage with, and where's the emphasis. So today, more than ever, creators themselves are in the spotlight. You can follow them on social media. You see what they say about the world. You see what they don't say. And that's a part of consuming media now. It's, you know, who's the person who made it? What do they believe? And how do they project it into the world? And the question of being political or apolitical extends straight onto their Twitter pages. And we confronted that head-on with Norlandia during that Kickstarter while it was being Kickstarted. Donald Trump was elected president. And we put out a backer update saying we oppose everything that this man stands for, that this is not what we believe in as a company and what we believe in as people, and that we strive to make games that can be a part of a better world than the one that Donald Trump promises. And we said, we don't want to be quiet about it. We want to let people know where we stand. It's not going to be a secret. And if that bothers you, let us know because we'll refund you. And some people took us up on that, right? We, we, we refunded a few orders. On the whole, a lot of people were grateful to see us speaking up. In the people who... there, So there was this group of people in what we'll call the middle. <laughs> uh, and these people in the middle were people who didn't want refunds, but they said to us, like, gaming is this place that I go for an escape. Gaming is this place that I go to shake off the worries of the day, to not think about what's going on in the world. I just don't understand why you had to go and make this game political, like this moment political. I didn't think that I was backing a political game. What does this have to do with the election? What does this have to do with this game that I backed on Kickstarter? And I want to like, first, I'm curious if I could talk to those people now. Maybe we should try. Maybe we should send them emails. Like if I could talk to these people now, I want to ask if they feel the same way. Mm -hmm. And second, I want to answer, like, what were the actual real world impacts of this moment on our lives? And then by extension, our work. I'll say one of them was really tangible. There is a trade war going on with China that has raised our manufacturing costs exponentially. And, you know, we made a political choice when we were working on Good Dog, Bad Zombie to produce it as much as possible by worker-owned cooperatives in America. That political choice has 
<laughs> made us dodge some of the worst of the tariff's effects. And it's still affecting us for other components. Yeah, there so. are some, you know, there's some game components that are just really hard to get manufactured in the U.S. Like, there's just, like, not really any U.S. manufacturers that have been set up for it because there's never been a demand because yeah. everybody goes to China. So a few of our pieces are sourced in China. And after we'd ordered them and paid for them, we got a message from our manufacturer that we owed hundreds of more dollars just because because their costs had shot up with this trade war. Um, we were able to absorb some of that cost, but like not everybody is doing that. No. So that is like a very, like that is, I, I feel like that is politics at like its most explicit, where it is just like, like explicit. Dollars <laughs> out of your wallet. It is just like the real world impacts. So there's an example of like this really tangible way that this impacted us. But what about like the ones that are like the less like, you know, not the dollars and cents ones? Um, I mean, we have an administration right now that is talking about removing trans people from existence. Yeah, like removing all civil liberty protection. Stripping away protections around gender identity. Um, you know, I'm a queer person. There are a lot of queer people in my life. There are trans people in my life. Like the wellness and safety of the people closest to me impacts what I make and how I make and like how I exist. I mean, I'm legitimately looking at what it would be like to move out of the country. And in terms of this business, it would be extremely disruptive for me to live in a different country. That would make it a lot harder. <laughs> We'd have to figure out like how to pay you internationally. Um, it would be a ton of work, but this is a hostile political situation that we are in. And all of us are trying to figure out how to protect ourselves and our loved ones and to know when to fight and when to protect. Because, like, the day-to-day -day has gotten really scary for a lot of us, I do take note of who I don't see speaking. Like, people in positions of power, people with a lot of reach. I mean, after the, after the election, around the time that we made our post about Noirlandia, there was somebody who's the head of a major, of a board game company that has done extremely well on Kickstarter, who said, you know, I'm going to start to kind of scrub politics out of my feed. It's a lot for me. I'm not here to be political. I'm just here to make games, do what you want. But, you know, I don't want to be, this isn't stuff I want to see. I won't ever buy one of their games. Like that, like, that like shot an arrow into my heart because this is a person who was in a position where they could say, I don't want this stuff in my feed because it doesn't impact me. People will keep getting stripped away and stripped away of their rights to exist, and I will be one of the last ones to go. Right. You have the luxury of pulling back. And, you know, in business, you can have the uh, luxury of playing both sides, you know? I don't discriminate between dollars. 
anybody who wants to give me money is fine. It's a... <laughs> it's just such a toxic attitude to have. It's one that makes me feel very disinclined to work with anybody who's, you know, unwilling to stand up for what they believe in or stand up for people who aren't themselves because they're being bought off. They think they can make a few extra dollars that way. And, you know, something that people have expressed recently is like, I feel really anxious right now that I'm going to support something where then I learn that the creator is a big old fucking Nazi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're around now. And like to that, I feel like to that I say like, first of all, I want to give people some leeway in that like, I know that not everybody does not follow uh, the inner lives of game design, of indie game designers. <laughs> You know, or whether it's like musicians or authors, like not everybody is is engaging with like the things that they love and the the media that they engage with at this other level. Yeah. And like that's okay. Like I want to give people a little bit of wiggle room to like have a problematic fave and then be like, oh my god, I didn't actually realize that this person has this history of harassing people offline. I'm horrified but i backed this kickstarter it happens mm -hmm. <laughs> be kind to yourself and like be kind to the people who are coming to games new and maybe don't have the same context i feel like also though we're at this crossroads where like we're being given we're given choices where when we do have that information like we get to decide do i still want to watch this person's movies who was accused of sexual assault. Mm -hmm. Do I want to play this game with this creator on it who said this racist slur in the 90s and I learned about it? What is my, like, what are, what do I feel about this? I can understand where the protest is coming from, that this is a unhappy situation. You want to go to games to relax? Now it turns out that the person who made this is guilty of sexual assault. It's a different experience. Bummer. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, it is a bummer. It's too bad. But we are adults, largely, in the world. It's the real world. It's complicated. It's messy. It's worth stepping up and thinking about it. And I think that by considering it, and by being open about it and not trying to make gaming a place that hides away from the troubles and politics of the world, you have the opportunity to make much better games and to make larger statements and to find meaning and connections that you couldn't if it was entirely a place to retreat and run away. I agree with all of those words. Nice. That's a good blanket, <laughs> blanket agreement. Wholeheartedly We should agree. save that comment and just slap that into <laughs> all the podcasts. Good. I'm going to save that audio file so you can <laughs> write me over. Yeah. Yeah. When I commandeer the podcast. <laughs> I agree with all of those words. It'll always be the same mm -hmm. monotone. <laughs> Thank you, Hannah. Thank you for being here. In reality and saying those things. I agree with all of those words. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> so this is to say that there will be implicit politics in Questlandia too. We don't have a say over that. Like, we are people who live in a culture 
That we do. There are things that we're going to be writing in that represent our own experiences and biases, um, and, and we're not even going to realize we're doing it. And also that there will be explicit politics in Questlandia too, whether it's things that we've written into the game, because we're trying to say things about uh, collapsing societies, about like the systems of structural inequality that contribute to chaos and sadness and collapse in societies. And also there's going to be the things that we say as creators. You know, right. I mean, we're part of a co-op that uh, chooses at the end of the year where we want to donate money to, and we're going to be giving money to organizations that protect trans people and and organizations that, you know, help reunite families at the border. Yep. And we're going to be revisiting this idea consistently as we finalize the design of Questlandia 2, because it's going to be infused into every fiber of this game that we want it to be an expression of our best hopes and a way for people to feel invited into creating worlds that explore new possible realities and find out what works and what doesn't and create a political space. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this game is uh, a product of the things that we believe in and the things that we care about and also hopefully an expression of love. So our email inbox was pretty quiet uh, over the past few weeks. I think I mean, we're kind of... we've been pretty quiet We've been too. quiet. We're trying to kind of get back on a schedule. Uh, if you have thoughts and questions about today's episode, let us know. You can email us at designdocpod at gmail.com or tweet to us at designdocpod, or you can talk to us personally. I am HanBandit on Twitter. And I'm a drawn novel. The Design Doc intro and outro theme was written by our friend, musician Pat King. Thanks, Pat. Design Doc is hosted by the One Shot Podcast Network. One Shot hosts other great shows like The Broadswords. The Broadswords is an... <laughs> Swords. Swords. How do people say normal words? <laughs> <laughs> the Broadswords is an all-women D&D podcast focused on drama, roleplay, and subverting stereotypes. Join the broads as they unravel the mysteries of snowy Rashomon, a land ruled by witches and steeped in superstition. Berserkers reign and spirits roam the frozen wastes. Our cast of characters all have their own reasons for journeying north, but they soon find they have something in common. They are pawns in a divine plot. Ooh. I know, and aren't we all? <laughs> Thank you for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with an episode about probably how playtests went at Metatopia. Thanks for listening, heroes.